Okay. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the first Bright Sparks conversation slash Yo Profile, which is a contraction of Young Professional Profile and is a working title. So this may develop into shorter or longer conversations. Is it a podcast? Isn't it? I don't know. But we want to showcase a few climate legends in our midst. And today, uh, for our first guest, I have the distinct privilege of being joined by Emma Pocock. Emma has worn many hats working in sustainability across the years, from policy and communications for an Australian senator with a climate focus to the recent launching of Front Runners, which we'll hear more about today. She's worked in Zimbabwean community development and conservation and co-written In Our Nature with her partner, David. Uh, and on account of being our first Bright Sparks conversation uh, subject test, um, trailblazer she she has also earned bright sparks climate legend certification so congratulations and welcome emma thank you it's a real honor um and a total pleasure to be here great it's fantastic to have you so we have a bit of a run sheet today um but who knows where it could go so we'll start with the um the particulars and then we'll get into the wishy-washy touchy-feely how should the world be right now kind of questions, which is probably well framed for such a tumultuous day worldwide. So Emma, what, what is your current job or role title? Where are you in the world? And would you like to fill the gaps of the, of that terribly abridged LinkedIn bio that I stole from you? <laughs> uh, thanks, Finn. Um, I am the CEO of Frontrunners, which is a new organisation. We've just been live for a couple of months, um, but that's my baby. And our goal is to help athletes uh, engage on the biggest issues facing our generation and, in fact, all of us, um, the climate crisis and the biodiversity crisis. Um, I'm based in Canberra, uh, which is the best city in the country, um, but spent a lot of time travelling around, particularly to Sydney for work. Um, so, you know, I'm a big fan of all our capital cities and the smaller ones too. Great. Are you a Can are you, are you Canberra homegrown? No, I grew up in the northwest, actually, uh, in a little town called South Headland in the Pilbara. Um, Amazing. Did high school in Perth, and then and have, but have been here in Canberra for eight years. So um, well and truly home now, and Fantastic. very glad about it. And how did Canberra lockdown go? Uh, look, it's I've I just had so many zooms with people in Melbourne the last few days, and I just feel so guilty all the time right. talking about how great it's been. Um, oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, all the stereotypes about Canberrans, Canberra being full of public servants and extremely rule abiding turn out to be both true and uh, extremely beneficial in the midst of a global pandemic. Sure. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Gotcha. Emma, what has been a, a big or perhaps unexpected win along your journey to, to date? Anything? Oh, um, I mean, as you and I assume most of your listeners would know, we don't get a huge amount of wins in the climate space at a at a personal level, but um, it's actually a really hard question. Um, 
I'm like a super positive person. So you'd think I'd have some sort of like short list of great things to um, say, but. Um, well, I don't blame you. We don't all have our, our key career achievements written on the fridge to see every morning, <laughs> do we? <laughs> no, but maybe we should change that. Um, I think, uh, you know, like thinking about like big wins that, you know, uh, I haven't particularly been a part of, but I think are the result of, you know, like, all the little pieces of the puzzle that everyone who's working in this space are doing. Um, you know, like there's been so much great news over the last few months with um, so many businesses looking to transition to 100% renewable, setting their sell themselves um, net zero pathways. You mm. know, just in the last week, Bunnings and Officeworks have yep, committed yep. to 100% renewable. Um, and, you know, no one person in the climate movement can take credit for that, but it's all of the kind of combined efforts um, of everyone doing their little piece. And I think that's, you know, a really important thing to keep in mind is that even if they're not our personal wins, we should be celebrating them when those things happen because otherwise it can be very hard to pinpoint any <laughs> real personal wins. Um, Absolutely, yeah. Yeah. I don't think, is, is the self-made man or woman really a thing? We yeah. On, on tribe and, and company in companies. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, I think that that um, has really interesting applications in sport as well where, you know, even in individual sports, most of the athletes that I know will say it's their families and their teams that kind of get them there, you know, like they couldn't be on the field or the pitch or the court without the physios mm. and the coaches and the, you know, partner who's, um, you know, prepared to not see them for 22 weeks a year. Um, and patch them up when they get back. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, um, yeah, I think like we'd all be a bit richer if we could see ourselves as part of that bigger community um and celebrate the wins and, and be able to commiserate on the losses too great answer good framing for ensuing questions as well <laughs> um could you tell us more about front runners what are its aims um you've launched recently but what, what what's kind of been the progress to date and what are what are some pain points and obstacles so far yeah, so I um, have worked across a bunch of different um, areas, as you highlighted in my nice LinkedIn bio there, um, from conservation to policy. I've worked in the think tank and research. And toward the end of last year, just started thinking a lot about the timeframes that we're looking at on, on the climate crisis and also on the biodiversity crisis and thinking, well, where am I best place to put my energy to try and have the most impact to get us in the best position possible to try and address those things. And, um, you know, I've spent 10 years supporting my partner, Dave, who's just retired from a professional rugby career to use his platform to talk about the things that he really cares about. Um, and I just had this suspicion that there were probably a lot of athletes who, if they had someone in their corner like I've been for Dave over the last decade, that they would probably be able to engage a lot more with these issues. Um, it's easy to think about 
athletes as kind of the gods of our culture and they must have everything at their fingertips but they actually face a lot of barriers to engaging with anything beyond sport from being you know time poor to negotiating relationships with clubs and teammates and sponsors um so i thought if we could provide a service that helped them negotiate some of those barriers that one they'd be really excited about getting involved in some of these issues and two they could have a huge amount of power in helping shift the kind of cultural conversation that we're having about these issues because i think so many australians actually love being in the outdoors you know we're very um beach going, hiking kind of nation. Um, but we often don't connect that to the kinds of problems that we're facing. And so um, I guess the role of front runners is to help athletes figure out how to make those connections and find ways to take action either in their lives personally or talking to their fans um, and within their industry as well. Um, so that was kind of the premise of what we wanted to do. Um, and thankfully, our suspicions about what those barriers were have proven to be true. Um, and there are a lot of athletes who are really excited about getting involved in these sorts of things. I mean, you know, the impact that climate change is having on sport is already being felt in Australia and around the world. So it's not just something that they might care about because it's the right thing to do, but also it's impacting on their livelihood and, and that's only going to get worse. Um, so there's some really practical components to what we do in front runners as well as the kind of um, bigger picture what does what do these problems mean for all of us um, there's not anything that i can particularly say yet about what we're doing um, but we've got some really cool things on the cards um, working with just like it's such a pleasure to work with athletes because they are so goal oriented and they really understand that there's a lot of small steps that need to be taken to achieve what you want to see at the end. Um, and so it's, yeah, it's a really exciting um, industry to be doing this work in. Fantastic. I'm glad, I'm glad you provided that caveat at the end because I was about to press on the petition. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I think the, what, what sprang to mind then was upcoming Qatar world cup and temperatures seems a really obvious example but i'm sure there are ways that climate change is encroaching upon sport and athletics in ways that even experts don't understand yet yeah and i mean there's been some really great reports that have come out about it i'm thinking in particular of a report that um came out called hip for six about the impacts of climate change on cricket which obviously as a summer sport is going to be pretty mm. badly affected a lot of the major cricket playing nations are in countries that are going to be affected and already are being affected first and worst by climate change, you know, like India and Bangladesh. Um, and off the back of that, you know, you had Shane Warne coming out and saying that we need to be doing more. And, you know, he personally committed to investing in renewables. Um, so I think those kinds of things are really impactful. Um, and then obviously we had the bushfires here over the summer and you saw a stop in play in a big bash league game. The Canberra Raiders and the Brumbies had to move their preseason training because Canberra for, I don't know, it was like a month had the worst air quality in the world. Um, it, you know, and these things are only got going to get 
worse over time if we don't take steps to arrest uh, that change. Um, and I think sport are reali sport's realising that it can not only, um, you know, benefit from looking good by doing this kind of work, but that also it's in their commercial interest to do mm. this, so that they can safeguard the future of their industry. And in a broader lens, uh, I, I liked that you said the impacts have to be salient, especially for a uh, community of, of Australians that love the outdoors so much. I think the more we can build a positive story about action and, mm -hmm. and bring the awareness through that way, the, the faster we can save our sport while we save our forests yeah. slash whatever corny <laughs> analogy you'd like to draw there. Yeah. Fantastic. What grinds your gears in government, policy, industry, public opinion, conversations, anything, maybe with a sustainability focus? What do you wish we were better at or no longer having to drudge through? Yeah, I mean, the thing that springs immediately to mind is um, the idea, whether it's at an individual, household, community or societal level, that like what we do doesn't matter. Um, you know, we've got the data now to be able to say, well, that's actually just not true. Um, decisions that are made at a household level are responsible for something like 40% of emissions. So what you choose to do as a household um, really does make a difference. And that that's writ large as well at, at a political level, you know, like we're a small country, um, but you know, what we do does make a difference, both in terms of the fact of um, whether it's on the climate side, reducing our emissions, reducing our coal and gas exports, um, electrifying everything, building mass renewables here. Um, Helping neighbouring countries decarbonise. Yeah, that makes a massive difference. Um, you know, and, and we're increasingly in a position where if we don't, we're going to be in serious economic trouble because so many of our trading partners are now making these commitments that we're refusing to make. Um, but it's true as well on, on the, I guess, the biodiversity side, you know, like we lead the world in mammal extinctions. Um, what we, the choices and that we're making about how we manage our land here are really consequential. Um, we could be um, managing land in a way that was building topsoil rather than degrading it. Um, and all of those choices have real impacts, not just for future generations, but actually for for all of us who are alive today. Um, so the idea that, yeah, what we do doesn't matter really is a big bugbear of mine. And it's not to say that everyone has to live perfectly and that's the litmus test for whether you get to be involved in the conversation. But I think, mm -hmm. you know, just like in sport, Australians have been good at punching above their weight on the world stage. We could be doing that when it comes to these challenges as well. Totally. And even I think, at least for some aspects of, of the top-down solutions, it's still the individual that uh, enforces or enables that kind of thing with elections and investment. Yeah. It's, it's, it's your vote is leverages, uh, the leverage of your vote is much 
uh, higher than the leverage of your minute daily decisions around the home. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and if you look at what's happening in Australia, you know, if every young person in the country enrolled to vote, they would actually have a huge political impact. So the idea that, oh, well, I'm not going to vote because my voice doesn't matter is actually super inaccurate. Um, yeah. It's when we combine our voices that they become extremely powerful, which is, you know, one of the reasons I think what you're doing with Bright Sparks is so exciting is that, you know, if we can build these networks of younger people who are thinking about, well, how do I use my voice and how do I use my skills to engage with the world in a way that can really make a tangible difference? And that's great at an individual level, but when we combine it, that's when it has that real power. Yeah, and that, at least with the, with the voting and putting your money where your mouth is uh, side, that gives you access to influence things that you wouldn't be able to do every day. Mm. Like voting for rigorous land management policy, stopping deforestation. You, well, we know of, we know of people that have physically stopped that in the past, but <laughs> for the, for the everyday person uh, in far flung areas, that's, you know, that's the, that's the path to action there. Mm, yeah. And yeah. on your point um, about soil. Yeah. I think there's a, there's also a regenerative, agriculture uh, proponents that we might have to speak to on this later as well. Yeah. Yeah. Get me started and I might not stop. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Let's, let's churn through a, a, a few more. Who is your favorite climate legend and why? I mean, it seems so cliche to say it, but I'm listening to um, David Attenborough's audio book at the moment, which he narrates himself. And I yeah. like, just watching someone who's committed his life to giving us all an imagination of what the natural world is and what it could be at 93, you know, like at the end of his career, at the end of his life, um, just being so committed to all of us. Um, I just find that so inspiring. Um, you know, it's kind of the two ends of the spectrum, you know, from, from like David Attenborough, who's at that point in his life. And I get so much motivation from him kind of continuing that commitment. And then at the other end, the school climate strikers, um, you know, like I wish I had been that cool and engaged when I was in high school. Um, totally. And that kind of just gives you so much hope that like, oh, actually we could get this done. Um, and what great hands will be leaving the country, the planet in, if we can get it right in the next, you know, eight years and give them the, you know, the levers of power one day um, when they've done all this incredible work, making us all wake up. Um, so yeah, they're probably the kind of two at very different points of their lives that um, <laughs> yeah. find really, really motivating. Mm. Yeah. Let's call it the top down and the bottom up solutions. <laughs> yeah. Um, I think this phrase might've been coined by our founder, Jackie Fetchett, the alter eco. If you didn't have to save the world, what would you do? What's your alter eco? Oh, I mean, um, probably some combination of um, like running a regenerative farm and writing. Uh, I, um, 
don't put nearly as much time into my writing as I would like, but I always have some sort of like poetry or um, like I'm forever jotting down notes for a book that I, fiction book that I want to write one day. Um, mm. And yeah. Just You're now nature for more poetry. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We've 250 copies left. Um, oh, that's it. Yeah. Um, yeah. So probably that, I mean, you know, like sometimes doing this work, um, it can be pretty exhausting and appropriately, like there's a lot of despair associated with it um, when you're like talking to climate scientists and reading research all the time. Um, and part of me just thinks, oh, well, like it'd be so nice to go and have a piece of land that I was responsible for taking care of um, and that would feel a lot more tangible um, mm. than some of the work, you know, that I've done over the last few years. Um, yeah, and, and those kind of great farmers all over the place, you know, Australia's got some of the best farmers in the world who are doing that work of stewarding their land producing food for and fibre for all of us, but also restoring landscapes. You know, I think that they're the real unsung heroes um, because we spent seven months running Dave's grandfather's farm and it is bloody hard work. So, um, yeah, I'd love to join their ranks one day once we've sorted this out. Awesome. Bloody hard, but I'm sure really satisfying to see your impact firsthand right in front of you. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, that idea of like doing work that's reproductive, you know, you're, it's not just that you're producing something, but you're part of, mm. I guess, like healing things at the same time as you're producing things for other people. Um, it's really powerful. Yeah. And I'm, I'm quite envious of people on the ground doing whatever they might be sometimes stuck behind a screen. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yes. Especially after this year. Yeah. Oh, totally. <laughs> Now, this this is probably. Um, I'm sure this next question would would probably get a quite a similar response across most, um, at least the kind of overarching objective. But maybe there's a really particular vision here. What gets you out of bed every day? Oh, um, I mean, I'm just like a extremely pragmatic person and there's just work to be done uh, yeah. you, you just got to do it yeah and i mean i love my job i really you know every few days my colleague eloise and i will just turn to each other in the office and start laughing because we can't believe that you know we get to do this work um which is a great way to feel when you're working on something that's pretty grim sometimes um yeah. But, but yeah i mean there's just work to be done and it's so important um it's the future of all of us that's kind of at stake uh and it's not that like i think about that every day um but certainly that um i don't know if you saw that clock that was installed in times square the countdown clock mm, yeah. will be close to our carbon budget but that really gave me a good extra push that it's not, you know, when that IPCC report came out saying we've got 10 years, it's not 10 years until we need to start 
working on this. It's 10 years until we need to fix it or, or you know, it's going to be pretty bad. Um, and seeing that clock kind of counting down the days and hours and minutes was sort of a real reality check for me of like, okay, well, this work needs to be done and lots of other great people are involved in doing it, but this is my little bit that I'm responsible for. Great. And I think that ties into the field work versus screen work. Um, personal narrative to see, to see a clock ticking down might be much more impactful to spur someone to action than seeing the figures in the report or thinking this is in 10 years. If you see, I looked at, I looked at um, the electricity profile of, of the Eastern States of Australia today and how that's changed over the last, I don't know, 10 years or something. Mm. And it's pretty impressive the scale that, that the black has, has shrunk away and the green and the yellow for wind and solar has mm. increased, but it's still such a huge chunk. There's, there's so much work. And to see, to see that still there, even though it's, you know, a very basic graph still, mm. still hits harder than I think a, a sentence or, or the percentages would. I think the good thing about this work though, is that like what we need to get done is actually quite tangible. You know, we need to not be using coal, oil and gas anymore. And we need to do that as quickly as possible. Mm. Um, you know, there's a lot of other things, you know, we, we need to be um, locking up land for sequestering carbon. We need to be, uh, but they're all like really tangible things that we know how to do. We've got the resources, we've got the technology. Uh, it's just about mobilizing the will. Um, That's right. The way, the way is already there. Yeah. Yeah. So it's kind of like, it's not a unsolvable problem. Um, sure. There might be a wicked, or I think it was recently called a hyper wicked, the new, the new category for climate change, that yeah. kind of problem. But um, I think wicked solutions working in tandem, they're already, they're already combating it. Mm. Emma, what are you nerding out on right now? Make of that what you will. I mean, well, it's, um, I don't know when this is going to go live, but it's the votes are being counted in the US right now. And I've been on a real uh, American uh, politics bender for the last yeah. I don't know, two weeks in, in the countdown. Um, you know, it's such a strange thing. You know, I'm sure maybe the Pacific watch Australian elections with the same kind of um, trepidation that mm. the rest of the world watches the US elections. But, you know, to, ha to be watching something that you've got absolutely no agency in is such a bizarre... Um, I mean, it's not bizarre for most people living in the world. Um, you know, like we have a very functional democracy here in Australia. So that's from coming from a very privileged position. Um, but yeah, that's kind of been consuming me. But I have actually been trying to read a lot more fiction that's about place and our connection to place. Um, over the last kind of, I guess, few months, I read some of the books would be um, The Yield by Tara Jean Winch about a um, community in Western New South Wales and the Wiradjuri language and um, that kind of connection to land. Um, and then another Australian author, actually, um, Ilka Tamke, wrote a book called Song Woman about um, the Roman invasion of, like, Great Britain. Um, but the 
the main character in it is kind of like responsible for carrying the kind of folklore through the connection to places and thinking a lot about awesome. what it means. Um, my partner Dave says this thing sometimes about how you won't fight for what you don't love and you can't love what you don't know. Um, and so thinking a lot about that connection to places being really the and knowledge about where we live and being the really foundational thing that inspires the love that makes us capable of fighting. Um, so kind of trying to dig into that a bit. Wonderful. Mm. Um, what's next? Well, would you recommend any other compulsory reading or viewing material? Ooh. Um, I was thinking about this before, actually, and a thing that I think is worth, I mean, I, there was a while there where everyone was kind of talking about it in the wake, I guess, of the 2016 election, um, but I think it's worth just saying all the time is um, being really aware of what your media and also social media diet is like and trying to make sure that you don't get locked in an echo chamber where the only people that you're speaking to are people who agree with you, who share the same worldview, mm. um, because they're not the people whose minds we need to change. Um, and it's something that I have to remind myself of all the time. Um, and certainly in my early twenties, I was an extremely annoying, self-righteous social justice warrior. Um, and it's taken me, you know, kind of 10 years to grow up and learn to listen before I speak uh, with people who I don't agree with to try and really understand what their behaviour and their beliefs are motivated by. Um, and I think, one, it's just a nicer way to live. Um, if you're able to greet people with a kind of curiosity, uh, I'm hesitant to say with like compassion, but I think curiosity is a good posture to hold. Um, mm. And then use, use that as data. You know, it's, I often think about engagements that I have with people who I don't agree with as, um, you know, you don't want to be transactional in all your kind of interactions in the world, but as like a focus group almost, you know, what, what can I learn here about other people in the world who see things differently because they're, they've had a different history and, um, so, I mean, those, what, whatever that is for each individual in terms of what they, what else they should be adding into their rotation. I don't know. Uh, for me, that looks like, you know, reading the Australian from time to time, listening to podcasts where that have broad listenerships that are people not like me. So tuning into the Joe Rogan podcast every now and then to find out what, young men think, um, uh, you know, those, and what, just, and what Alex Jones is yeah, <laughs> yeah. himself about. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and yeah, I found it extremely helpful, uh, both in terms of, um, helping me think more creatively about solutions to the communications challenges that we face and also just making me a generally a more curious person, um, which I think is a net benefit. Absolutely. I've, I've only, um, 
oh geez, I hope this doesn't attract hatred for admitting it, but I've only just opened up to listening to conservative voices at all. Um, so I, I, I just recently jumped into a whole lot of podcasts and everything was left of center. Mm. Um, and, and then I think I heard one of them say, there's always signal in the noise. And that means if almost all the time you will find some element of truth or some something useful worth knowing from someone that disagrees with you, even starkly. And even if you don't learn the truth, you will understand their lens, which may or may not be contaminated by, by higher powers of, of media. Mm. Um, but that also reflexively makes you ask, what am I being contaminated by? And that kind of, that's, that's burst my sense-making um, apparatus wide open, which is, gradually consolidating into something that's a bit more mm. right across the spectrum. And I've yeah. also heard, I've heard a guy called Daniel Schmachtenberger say um, the left and, and the right are, um, are necessary because the, the right seeks to give individual sovereignty and, and encourage them to forge ahead so they can make societal position, uh, societal conditions better for the masses. Mm. And the left says we need better societal conditions for the masses so that individuals with that can be empowered to strive ahead. So they're, they're mutually um, complementary, I guess. Mm, yeah. Yeah. And that's not something I would have stum I would have come to the conclusion of before several months ago. Mm. I mean, I think that there's a period certainly there was for me where I needed to, um, really like believe things so strongly and hold them closely because I was figuring out who I was going to be, you know, outside of my family of origin. Um, and, and then hopefully you get to a point where you can hold those things a bit more loosely, um, not to be a kind of like someone who flip flops on issues, um, or values more importantly, but, um, yeah, so you can have that, hold that kind of curious posture and you know like I just hate the idea of getting to a point where we can't be friends with people who we have different political views uh, and that you know that's been one of the best things about being involved in sport is that you're part of a community that's thrown together because of a specific skill set uh, that has nothing to do with values necessarily and they come from a really wide range of backgrounds and beliefs uh, and there's increasingly few places like that in our culture. And, and I think that's to all of our detriment. Mm. I think I heard Brett, a guy called Brett Weinstein say it quite concisely that there are some things in society worth conserving and there are some things worth radically reforming. And sometimes it's in between. Mm. So you need to approach whatever thing at hand um, with the appropriate toolkit, mm. weigh it up and, and think what's, is, is this worth, uh, preserving or changing yeah in the case of climate change <laughs> i don't want to be conservative <laughs> not with the odds we're we're, we're, we're playing with yeah. uh, okay well i think you just answered this what attitude shift would society collectively benefit from like, are you happy with that or something something to add there um i'm pretty happy with that cool and what will a day in the life of emma look like in 10 years do you think? Oh, wow. Will it be uh, that idyllic 
regenerative farming already? I mean, I hope so. Um, I hope we've implemented some serious and exciting policy change that, you know, leads to a renewables job boom and a reevaluation of the way we treat land and a foregrounding of Indigenous perspectives. I think that would leave us all richer, both economically and, I guess, spiritually. I mean, Australia is already such a wonderful place, not for everyone, but for a lot of us. Um, but we really need to think about what kind of future we want to build and make some big decisions with the global economy reshaping before our eyes and with some pretty dire warnings about where the planet is headed. It's a real opportunity um, to do that. And I think we're ready for it. Um, and, you know, if we can do all those things, then 10 years is pretty exciting. I mean, I think that's the thing is like, we're at the point now where the future, if we take action, isn't doom and gloom. We're not going to be missing out on things. You're not going to have to, you know, it's going to be better. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I, like, I just hope we can do it. And I'm just going to work really hard at my little bit. Yeah, great. <laughs> I can just be a farmer. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think, um, well, time, time is running out, but I think that means we just have to run a bit faster towards the finish. Mm. And the earlier we action it, um, at a higher level than perhaps we are, then the more orderly and the more economically prosperous the transition will be. Mm. And it, it may not be catastrophic in the end. I hope, I hope we're told by, let's say, uh, climate deniers that we overreacted. Yeah. That's what you want for a pandemic and for, and for our doomsday, right? Yeah. <laughs> to have avoided it and then, and then, and then be uh, chastised. So, but yeah, the, the more orderly, the transition, the more uh, beneficial in the end. Uh, that also, that quite, quite well answers what progress do you hope society and or industry will have made in 10 years? Mm. So we can, we can steam ahead. Yeah. Uh, okay. Change of tack. What's your spirit animal and why? <laughs> uh, I don't know. I have a real affinity for magpies. There's a few that live around our house that I would say I'm good friends with. Oh, great. Um, they're, not, they're not the swoopy kind then. They are the swoopy kind, but magpies can remember you. So this is what I never understand. is like, if you have a magpie that swoops in your area, feed it before swooping season and it will remember you and it won't swoop you. By their loyalty. Yeah. Yes, 100%. <laughs> um, but I don't think I'm sharp enough to, be, to have a magpie as my spirit animal. Um, they're so smart. Um, yeah, but I just love them. There's one that will come and sit by our front door in the morning sometime if it hears me in the entry and sing a nice little song to me. Yeah, they've got a great little warble, don't they? Yeah. We, at the family home, we had a, um, an injured prior magpie, which would always tuck one leg up and be, and be standing on, on its other and cock its head expectantly waiting for, uh, <laughs> waiting for the attention. <laughs> <laughs> secret supper which we which was a great regular ritual 
Um, and an advice, uh, sorry, a word of advice or inspo for young people looking to forge or further a career in sustainability. Do you have any points there, Emma? Yeah, I mean, I just think we need so many skills. So, you know, it doesn't have to be that you're working in a sustainability-specific job, you know, like we need people who can do everything. Um, so whatever it is that, you know, you're interested in studying or, or working as or whatever you're trained as, you know, find a way to put that in service of the kind of change that we need to see Um yeah, because it's going to take all of us figuring out what our little bit to do is. Um, and, you know, like, I guess my advice would be that, um, or not my advice, but my thought would be that one of the main reasons we're in this moment of great change with companies like Bunnings, like Officeworks, making these commitments is because of you. Um you know, young people, the school climate strikers, they're changing the country. Young mm. people can make a difference, um, both through their careers and just through their energy and enthusiasm. Um, and all that stuff really matters, you know, like, and it's, you know, as someone who's been working at this for a decade, like, it's just, like, so good to see. And I wish that I had... Um, understood the issues like young people today understand them at a much earlier age. Um, like we're all, if we're going to get this done, it's going to be because of you guys. Yeah, that, that's, that's a really encouraging thought. And I think fortuitously the groundswell is now at um, critical mass. I don't know. It's, it's at breaking capacity and that's aligning with uh, the, financial case for lots of things like energy efficiency, mm. um, going renewable, abandoning, uh, divesting from, from fossil fuels and, and, uh, with such, such risky, uh, world pricing going on because demand is shifting and it's not just us that are looking to drive this change, but large parts of the international community. Mm. It's yeah, it's, it's, um, it's, it's good timing. <laughs> I think, I think somewhat um, mutually informative, mutually uh, de de dependent there. One, one is, they're, they're synergistic. Yeah. There's, a, there's some buzzwords. You know, just spewed out. <laughs> um, I do have one other question, kind of a question, more of an assessment. I think when I was, when I was just preparing for this, I thought, um, based on, on what you've done to date, I guess, a recipe for your career impact involves the intersection of passion, risk-taking and collaboration. Would you agree with that assessment? Yeah. Um, I'm always really conscious that um, I've been in a pretty lucky position where I've been able to, at times, you know, not work and just, put all my energy into kind of volunteering in the space. Um, and that's not something that everyone can do. Um, but, and so, you know, in terms of the risk taking component, you know, there's been some things that have mitigated some of those risks for me. Um, 
but then you know like sometimes when I'm feeling overwhelmed by all the work I have to do for front runners I'll think like no one asked you to do this like that you that you get to do this this is you know an absolute privilege to get to do this work um and yeah I guess being able to reframe things like that when you're working in this space is really important because it can um it can be really exhausting uh but you know we've only got a bit of time and we've got to throw everything we've got at it including the kitchen sink yeah absolutely everything okay um to wrap up what's next and where do we find you and your initiative so what's next? Um, I mean, I'm doing lots of great work with athletes behind the scenes who are dreaming really big about what they could do to change the industry. Um, and hopefully some of those things will start to roll out in the new year. Um, in terms of where you can find us, we're on Instagram at Frontrunners Athletes and on Twitter at Frontrunners Oz, A-U-S. Um, Annoyingly, there's a problem with that. I need to get a younger person involved who can help me work out how to do these things. Um, and then um, we've got a little website. Um, but, yeah, keep watching your favourite sports heroes. See what they do. When they do something cool, Smash post that like it. Like it. Yeah. yeah. Tell them you think it's great because, you know, their clubs will be watching um sponsors will be watching and and we should be telling them you know what you're doing is great it's so important we love it we want to see more of it excellent wise words um let's leave it there because we've run we've run somewhat over time but (laughs) i kind of expected with the question list i had that that might happen thank you Emma, so much for joining the first bright sparks conversation um, I might call out Bright Sparks pretty quickly, but I guess anyone that's watching this is watching it on a platform. But we're on Instagram and LinkedIn. Uh, Bright Sparks Australia Clean Energy Crew on LinkedIn and Bright Sparks AU on Insta. Um, so find us there. Go and follow Emma. Stay stride of front runners. And um, this is the first of many Bright Sparks conversations. Thanks for listening. Thanks, Emma, for joining. Pleasure. Total pleasure. Thanks for everything you're doing. Really exciting. Cheers.